uh, as we jump into the message today, I just want to kind of um, jump off what Calf said earlier about Memorial Day. Uh, we do today honor and uh, remember, especially today and tomorrow on Memorial Day itself, the folks who have uh, sacrificed uh, and given ultimately for not only our country, but uh, for our way of life. And we just also pray on Memorial Day that we can be a nation and we can be a, a world of peace. I think we'd all agree that that is the legacy we'd love to leave our kids. But today, if you know of someone or maybe a family member, a friend, maybe you served alongside someone, uh, we do remember them today. And we don't take for granted that freedom that we have. Um, as a reminder, if you look around the room and you see the artwork that we have, Robbie's pointed this out as well. Uh, we've been moving through the different seasons uh, on the church calendar, and now we've come to really uh, the last season actually begins next week with Pentecost. So we're kind of in the Easter season, which is a season, the resurrection season of the, of the uh, Christian church. And the question that we've been considering over these last few weeks is, what kind of life does the resurrection of Jesus provide to people like you and I who are living our lives every day? And we've been looking at the signs of life, um, the signs of life that will mark a Christ follower uh, if they are truly walking with him. And we found out that there's some different elements that just kind of represent life. We've talked about bread uh, so far. Uh, we've talked about uh, the fact that we want to be uh, a church that radiates uh, and live a radiated life. And today we're going to jump into a very interesting and kind of different kind of life that Jesus not only modeled, but he taught us about on a consistent basis. And let me begin with this. When Jesus was thinking about how to extend his father's kingdom, how to extend his mission beyond his life on this earth, he did one thing. I want you to think about this. Jesus did not start a country. He did not form an army. He did not create a university, an institution, a corporation. He did not endow a foundation. Jesus started a life group. He started a life group with a very specific small group or life group curriculum. Listen to this verse from Mark's gospel. It says, Jesus went up into the hills and invited those he wanted with him, and they came to him. He settled on about 12 guys, 12 apostles, and here was the plan. The plan was for them to be connected to him, and then somehow he would send them out. Now, why did he do that? Why did Jesus choose that mode of spreading his, the news of, of his gospel? Well, Jesus, being very wise, understood a very important truth about life, and that is primarily people's lives are changed, friends, in the context of relationships. Relationships, life on life, is where character gets forged. It is where life really happens. So from the very beginning, this resurrection life, this Jesus life, was a literal life group movement. And the main curriculum was the Be Connected plan. And it had two facets, and really this is all it had. The first one was that they were going to be connected to Jesus. When they tried to serve God, Jesus would be with them. When they failed, Jesus would be connected to them. When they were sick and lonely, Jesus would be connected to them. When they were discouraged and confused and afraid, Jesus would be connected to them. 
they would walk through life together with Jesus. That was the be connected to Jesus plan. But there was another part of the plan that was just as important. Jesus was also teaching them how to be connected to one another. So when he leaves this earth in the book of Acts, as recorded in the New Testament, it is only natural that they would look at one another and they would say, wow, now we understand the point. We were connected to Jesus. We did life with him. Now he wants us to do the same thing over and over again with people around us. And here's the way the book of Acts puts it in Acts chapter 2. It says they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now that word fellowship has really been cheapened in our day. It's kind of been watered down. It's actually a very fabulous word. And it describes what a true life group is like. It's having people with whom you do life together with. You laugh, you weep, you celebrate, you share, you serve, you give, you receive. And you devote yourselves to that relationship. Then it goes on to say, Every day they continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes and ate with glad and sincere hearts. Now this tells us something about the Be Connected plan as it played out in the early church. I don't know if you've thought about this lately. But if you go through the book of Acts, one of the things that you notice and you see is that people were constantly meeting in little clusters or groups in homes. They met together in homes. In Acts, it talks about the house of a man named Jason, the house of a man named Justice, Philip's house, Lydia's house, the house of a Philippian jailer, the house of Mary, the mother of John. When the New Testament letter writers were greeting one another, when they would write letters and they would greet other believers, they would say things like, at the house of Priscilla and Aquila, or believers at the house of Aristobulus, believers at the house of Narcissus, which may have been a group for egomaniacs, I'm not sure. <laughs> believers at the house of Nympha, Onesiphorus, and Archippus. And the idea here was that, not that you had home groups that you were Uh, optional or that could be an optional uh, attendance home groups literally were the church they did not have buildings for almost 300 years sometimes they would meet in the temple courts but that was uh, on a semi-regular basis and here's the thing in other cities they didn't even have the temple courts to meet in and their plan was very simple we're going to go with the be connected plan and here's what I want you to know today that Over the years, over the centuries, over 2,000 years later, the Holy Spirit did not not at some point in church history say, whoa, we're going to switch things around now. Now church is going to be about coming to a building once a week, a place where you can really hide, where you really don't have to be vulnerable, where you really don't have to be open and get to know anyone. The Holy Spirit never said that. The plan really has stayed the same. The plan is to be connected, to get to know other people, and for them to get to know you, and for you to discover how God made you, and how you can serve, and how you can grow together. The Holy Spirit has never shifted the plan since the day of Pentecost. So today, as we continue on this journey, I want us to look at this facet of Jesus' plan, what we're going to call the connected life. What are the signs of a connected life. When a person is really connected to Jesus, and more importantly, today what we're talking about uh, is each other. When we're connected to him and then to each other, what does that look like? Well, here's a couple of signs. 
The first sign is this. The connected life means people are radically devoted to each other and they will pay a significant price to do life together. Now here's the thing. The Bible says that they were devoted to fellowship. They got this idea from none other than Jesus himself. When the twelve were in that little group with Jesus, one of the things about him is he never made them feel like they were an obligation. You ever been in that situation where you felt obligated to be somewhere? You had to be there. Just think of work, okay? It was never work. Here's something else. There is no record of any rabbi that we can find who recruited students to teach them. In the Jewish faith, it always worked the other way around. It was beneath their dignity for a rabbi to recruit. So what would happen is prospective students would come to the rabbi and he would say, listen, rabbi, can I be in your school of learning? But not with Jesus. Jesus comes along and Jesus says, I want you and I want you and I want you. No other rabbi did that. It was considered beneath their dignity. But Jesus said, listen, I want to tell you about dignity. Every person has dignity. Every person deserves dignity. And it's such a powerful dynamic when Jesus says to these men, I want to do life together with you. Now, why did he choose these 12? This is very interesting to me. Was it because they were smart or rich or powerful or influential? Evidently not. Peter was impulsive. Thomas was a doubter. Judas was greedy. James and John were ladder climbers. There was a guy named Simon who was a zealot, which meant he hated tax collectors. And there was another guy named Matthew who was a tax collector, which meant that he hated zealots. One of the questions that had to float around their life group constantly was, why in the world did Jesus put us together? And one of the things, maybe one of the central things Jesus was trying to teach them is that community is not the place where you get to be around people who are all beautiful and healthy and normal. Look around you. It is where you learn from Jesus how to love people who are as junked up and messed up and sinful and struggling as I am. Let's talk about this for a second. Anybody here like to shop and will admit it? Anybody here like to shop? Good. We got some honest people. I am very fortunate in my life, and I want to tell you why. Because I am not married to a shopper. Robin will shop time to, from time to time. Most of the time, it's when she's buying something for someone else or me. But when she does shop, she's really, really good at finding bargains. In fact, most of the stores that she go, goes in have a section of merchandise, and that section has merchandise available at greatly reduced prices. But there is a slight catch, and in case you've watched me dress, you know it. The tip-off is usually there's a little tag on each item. And that tag carries the words, as is. This is a euphemistic way of saying that these are damaged goods. Some stores call them slightly irregular. (laughs) And what the store is doing is it's issuing a fair warning. This is the department of something has gone wrong. There will be a flaw here. There will be a stain that won't come out, a zipper that won't zip. These are not normal items. Now, I love the way John Ortberg puts this. He says, the stores say to you, we're not going to tell you what the flaw is. You'll have to look for it. But we know it's there. 
So when you find it, and you will eventually find it, don't come whining and sniveling to us. Here's the thing about those kinds of items. There are no refunds. There are no exchanges. There are no returns. If you wanted perfection, you were walking down the wrong aisle. It comes one way, as is. Now here's the point as it relates to you, me, life groups, and Jesus. When you come to this corner of the universe, you have come to the as-is corner of the universe when it comes to people. I want you to think about someone in your life right now. A person that you know, maybe you love them, but you know that person is slightly irregular. That person has a little tag. There's a flaw here, an imperfection there. It could be a a streak of deception, a cruel tongue, a passive spirit, an out-of-control temper. Listen, I don't know what it is, but it is there. So when you find it, and you will find it, don't be surprised. If you want to deal with other human beings, you will deal with them in the as-is corner of the universe. And some of you, I think, really need to listen to this carefully. If you're looking for other people to be perfect, you've walked down the wrong aisle. But here's what happens. We live under this illusion that somewhere, somewhere, there has to be normal people out there. I want to tell you today, there is no such thing, friends. We are tempted to believe that some people are normal. And here's what we do. When we do that, we resist the truth that they are not. And what we do is we enter into this endless attempt to fix them, control them, or to pretend what they are not. In fact, I want to tell you one of the great maturity factors of anyone's life. One of the greatest factors of maturity, I believe, is when you come to realization that everybody comes as is in this world. And not only that everybody else comes as is, but when you can come to a point and realize that that you fall into that category too, it's a red letter day. See, in the way that glass is predisposed to shatter and nitroglycerin is predisposed to explode, we are predisposed to do wrong at times. Even when we face the opportunity to do right. Theologians call this uh, word, they use a word called depravity. Everybody's weird. Do you know what the number one killer of life groups is? The number one killer of life groups is not busy schedules. It is not even doctrinal, biblical disagreements. The number one killer of small groups is what is called extra grace required people. I've told you this before. They are people who talk too much. They don't get it. They're not smooth. They belong to the wrong political party. It's a person who reminds you of a relative that you don't want to be reminded of. Every group that I've ever been a part of in my life has an EGR. And if you can't identify the EGR, guess what? You are the EGR. (laughs) And people say, what's the big deal? Everybody's weird. Listen, it makes all the difference in the world, friends, because this yearning to attach, this yearning to connect, this yearning to be loved and be loved is the fiercest longing of the human heart. Our need for community with people and with God who made us is to the human spirit what food and water and air are to the human body. And I'll tell you this, that need will never go away. I don't care how weird 
or how as-is people are. Ed Hollowell is a lecturer at Harvard Medical School, and he speaks about this basic need for community. And he uses the term connection. The sense of being a part of something that matters, something larger than ourselves. He says we need face-to-face interactions. We need to be seen and known and served and do the same thing for other people. This is why social media will never, ever, ever, ever replace a connection with another living soul. We need to bind ourselves to each other with promise of love and loyalty made and kept. And these connections involve other people, of course, and especially God. But Hellwell goes on to say that people draw life even from things like pets and music and nature. He says there's a reason for this. Neil Platinga notes that the Hebrew prophets had a word for this thing. They called it shalom. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Now I want you to imagine a world, imagine a world where shalom prevailed. Listen to this. All marriages would be healthy and children would be completely safe. Those who have too much would be able to give to those who had too little. Israeli and Palestinian children would play together on the West Bank. In offices and corporate boardrooms, executives would secretly scheme to help their colleagues succeed. They would actually compliment their co-workers behind their backs. The tabloid magazines would be filled with accounts of courage and moral beauty. And talk shows would feature mothers and daughters who actually loved each other and wives who give birth to their husbands' children. And men who secretly enjoyed dressing as men. (laughs) Disagreements would be settled with grace and civility, and there would still be lawyers, perhaps, but they would have really useful jobs like delivering pizza, (laughs) which would be non-fat and low in cholesterol. Doors would have no locks. Cars would have no alarms. At recess, every kid would get picked for a team. Churches would never split. Starbucks would still exist, but would be absolutely free. No one would be lonely or afraid. And people of every race, tribe, nation would join hands in unity. At the center of this entire community would be this magnificent architect and most glorious resident, the God whose presence fills every single person with joy and delight. (laughs) But boy, are we a long way from that right now. There's this tension between the dream of community and the reality of our lives. And Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this best. He said, people enter relationships with their own particular ideals and dreams of what community should look like. He says, but God's grace quickly frustrates all dreams. A great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves, is bound to overwhelm us as surely as God desires to lead us to an understanding of genuine Christian community. Listen to what he says. The sooner this moment of disillusionment comes over the individual and the community, the better for both. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. 
What he's saying is sometimes we dream of this, but we really don't want to pay the price for this. Every community, every group consists of imperfect people. And think about what would happen if we continued that, that be connected plan. People would be radically devoted to each other. People would celebrate when it was time to celebrate and they would weep when it was time to weep and they would just do life. Here's sign number two. The connected life means people find a safe place to get real with other people. Now this is so easy to talk about and it is so hard to do. Acts 2 says that the early followers ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And that word sincere is a very interesting word. There's a very old story about its origin. Uh, It isn't really able to be confirmed for 100%. So I'm not actually sure if this was the way it was derived. But it actually gives a great picture of the meaning of this word. And the word sincere is made up of two Latin words. The word sin, which means without. And the word seer, which means wax. And as most of you know, the Romans prized the ancient Greek statues very much. Oftentimes, these uh, century-old statues would be, in, uh, would be chipped or cracked. And so sometimes the sellers, uh, the Roman sellers, would pour wax into the cracked uh, vases or sometimes statues to cover up the flaws. It made the statue look better than it really was. But if you had found that you had bought one of those covered up statues, you'd be very disappointed because it wasn't the real thing. It wasn't the original thing. But if the statue was authentic and if there were no attempts to hide it, they would label that statue sincere or without wax. Now here was a new community where people got together and they ate, the Bible says, with sincere hearts. Now I wonder where they got this idea. I wonder where they got this idea that they weren't going to cover their face. Well, look at Jesus. When they were with Jesus, they knew exactly what was going on in his heart. When he was sad, they saw him cry. When he was tired, he went to sleep. When he was troubled, they would hear him say, My soul is troubled. My sorrow is overwhelming. They heard him consistently say things that matched up with his life. Jesus really was one of the most transparent people to ever live. He would talk about even how religious people often look good on the outside, but on the inside was a different story. So what Jesus said is, listen, my community, the one that we're going to start here, is going to be about no posturing, no hiding told you this many times, but it's still the one of the things that draws me to my wife, Robin, is she has this transparency of spirit. She's a very human person. Our marriage is full of imperfections, most of them mine. But I have found a freedom in her, a capacity for authenticity and a lack of pretentiousness, a readiness to tell other people who she really is and what is in her heart that has really, really challenged me. She rarely worries about what do people think or what will the consequences be. And part of the reason I was drawn to her was I found myself liking the fact, even little things like she wouldn't wear makeup sometimes when we were dating. And I thought, this chick looks pretty good without makeup. I like this look. You know, it's a fascinating thing. (laughs) 
in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he gives them a picture of this. It's a beautiful picture. Moses goes up on the mountain to Mount Sinai, remember? And when Moses comes down from the mountain, he's been with God. And the text says, literally, his face was glowing. Now, in our day, about the only faces that glow usually are brides, right? Brides are known to be what? Radiant, right? Grooms, kind of a prop. Just stand up there and look straight ahead. But people talk about bride as being radiant brides, glowing. Moses' face was glowing and it impressed the people. They were like, wow, Moses has been with God. And the word began spreading. Have you seen Moses? Moses has this glowing face. And they looked at it and something inside of Moses said, I like this feeling. I love being a glow. And then one morning he wakes up and however, however it happens, he notices that the face is not as shiny as it was the day before. His glow is starting to fade. And he knows that if people were to see this, they would be less impressed. They wouldn't be thinking of him quite as highly as he wanted them to. So the text says, this is what the text says, Moses put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. He wanted people to think he was more spiritual than he was. So he walked around with this little mask, a little veil on. Now, it doesn't tell us how long that he wore it. My guess is that he wore it long enough for his wife to say, would you take the stupid veil off, Moses? <laughs> I'm glad you're not glowing anymore like a glow worm at night. What it must have been a relief, listen, for Moses to take off the veil. And Paul says, let me tell you the implications. Since we have the promise of God's love and acceptance through what Jesus has done for us, we can live with unveiled faces. No wax, no mask, no hiding. The only way you can reflect God's glory, friends, is with an unveiled face. And you heard these folks talk about their life group, a place where you can honor confidentiality. You can trust people. You know they won't be careless with their words. You'll laugh and you'll cry and you'll have great joy, but you'll never use humor to hide behind a hurt. Or you'll never use it to get a little jab in on someone else that you want to hurt. And the thing is, you'll be in a safe place to get real. Here's sign number three. The connected life also means that people speak the truth to one another in love. Paul talks about this in Ephesians. He says, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. Now, we're going to look like that one day. <laughs> we're going to grow up one day. We're going to help each other speak the truth in love. And reality is always our friends, but we run from reality like crazy. But a community of people, a group of friends... Sometimes even a small group of friends can really help us see the truth about ourselves. Now again, where did people get this concept from? Well, the first apostles, they obviously got it from Jesus again. One day he's walking along the road with some of his disciples. Remember this story in Mark? And Jesus says to him, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because they had argued about who was the greatest among them. Oh boy. Wouldn't you love to hear that argument? Now, Jesus knows what's going on, so he says, hey, guys, what are you talking about? And they're all kind of looking down at the ground, looking up at the stars, whatever. 
Oh, we're talking about the NBA playoffs, God, you know. Jesus, we're talking about the current trend of men wearing rompers, you know. Which, by the way, if I catch any of you men in rompers, we're going to have a talk. Who wants to tell Jesus? Who in the world would want to tell Jesus? We were arguing about who was the best follower. We're we're arguing about which one is the most advanced at picking up the cross and denying ourselves. Well, Jesus doesn't fire them. He doesn't kick them out. He doesn't say, hey, I'm afraid to raise this issue because it's going to cause some problems. He says, in the name of love, I'm just going to ask you what you're talking about. He exercises great skill here. And they learn from him. At one time, Peter gets off course, and uh, later on, he starts getting a little legalistic in the book of Acts. He's with one group of people, he's acting one way. He's with another group of people, he's another way. And Paul says to him, so I had to speak to Peter face to face. They devoted themselves to telling the truth. Here's my question. Do you have anybody that you can tell the truth and you know that when you walk out of that room, you're going to be loved just as much as when you walked into that room? Sign number four. The connected life means conflict, which is inevitable, leads to reconciliation and growth. Here's what people think. People think many times that you go to church and church should be one of the places where there is no conflict. Wow, I only wish that were true. (laughs) Nothing could be further from the truth. Conflict, friends, is inevitable in life. It is inevitable in churches it is inevitable in, in, in staff. It is inevitable in volunteers. It is inevitable in life groups. And conflict, although it is inevitable, it is one of the greatest things that leads to reconciliation. Remember the disciples, they bitterly disappoint Jesus at the crucial moment of his life. That small group that he had been with and he had connected with, they, he had poured himself into, they all ran away. Peter, his good friend, denies him three times. And after the resurrection, the disciples are out fishing, and Jesus comes to where they're at on the seashore. And he's standing there on the shore, and he's right there with a burning coal of fire, and he's cooking them fish and bread. Now, a lot of New Testament scholars believe that the reason that the text mentions that Jesus was standing beside a charcoal fire is more than likely uh, Peter was standing before a charcoal fire when he denied Jesus three times. So Jesus is kind of recreating this scene. Peter denied him three times, and now Jesus comes to Peter on the seashore, and he asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says to him three times now, I love you, I love you, I love you, Jesus. And in that moment... Peter has been reconciled. Jesus did not brush the conflict under the rug. Jesus did not, let's not talk about that night ever again, Peter. Rather, he reconciles him and he says, do you love me? Then follow me. There's a great legend and nobody really knows if it's true or not, but it's a great story In subsequent years, when somebody wanted to taunt Peter, when they wanted to kind of get under his skin, 
they would do it by crowing like a rooster. Just to remind him of Jesus' words that he would deny Jesus three times. But here's the thing. Peter knew better. Peter remembered that walk on the seashore. He remembered that day and he carried it with him the rest of his life. In fact, later on when he's writing his epistle, he says to the church there, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic and love as brothers. Some of you need to hear this today. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but blessing. Peter says, I know because I experienced what conflict looks like. And I experienced what resurrection reconciliation looks like. Last thing, and we'll close with this. The final sign of a connected life means people actually have a mission beyond themselves. The plan was to be connected to him and for him to send them out so they could be connected to others. I want you to think about this. What if those 12 guys had said, you know, we love hanging out together, but we really don't want to be sent out, Jesus. (laughs) We really would like to keep it just us. Think about it. Maybe none of us would even be here. I think about what it might have been like for that group to be reunited years later. One by one, they pass away. They give their life, many of them as martyrs. John was the last one. He was an old man living on the Isle of Patmos. And finally he dies, and they're all finally together before Jesus. And they remember when they were a young man, young men together. And Jesus says, you know, I'll make you fishers of men, guys. And he did. And now they're standing before him and they're saying, how do we do, Jesus? And Jesus says, I told you guys, whoever gives up anything to follow me, father, mother, brother, sister, houses, land, can receive 100, 1,000 fold. And Jesus says, now the connected life really starts. What if they had said no? I realize the greatest life group that has ever been is this life group that Jesus led. And I realize one of the reasons it was great is because Jesus led it. But here's what's amazing. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, listen to this. Wherever two or three people come together in my name, there I am. He says you come together and you devote yourselves to each other. Messy as is, sinful, junked up with conflict and problems and all kind of stuff going on in your life. He says, if you'll just commit and devote yourselves to each other, you will not regret it. Let's pray. Father, I bless you today that we have a Savior who not only modeled sacrifice, but he modeled relationships. He modeled what it was like to live a connected life. He was connected to you to his innermost being, but he was also connected to a small band of followers, a small band of friends, a life group that he could do life with. And because of that, our world literally has never been the same. Help us today to take another step into the center of community. Speak to us today about where we are with you and how we are connected or disconnected from others. 
I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.